I'm an alcoholic. My name is Bobby. So, Ficky Pa, Florida Conference of Young People in AA. I'm on a 352 bid. We're trying to get the, the convention come to Gainesville, and it's helping me stay sober today. There's a lot of people out here. My sobriety date is September 19th, 1996. It wasn't my first white chip. I picked up many before that. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor. My sponsor's name is Bill. He's a five foot six Marine. Carries himself well, like he has comfort in his own skin, and that's why I wanted him to be my sponsor. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and a lot of times I think um, the only nice guy that came from Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, my first taste of alcohol I was four years old, and I drank two bottles of vanilla extract. I got sick, but something inside me wanted it again. People I grew up around were people that liked to drink. They wanted to get outside of themselves. I don't know the why of why I'm an alcoholic. I have some ideas. You know, my childhood was not the easiest one. My parents split up when I was two and a half. My father, when I would be around him, would just sleep and drink. He brought me to see The Omen in the movie theaters. I've seen The Exorcist in the movie theaters when I was a little kid. Um, just not things you bring your kids to see. So my mom was left to take care of me and my sister that's eight years older than me with a father who she threw out because he was cheating on her. And... I felt the rage of my mother every single day. But I do love my mother. And the steps taught me to show her how I love her. I used to get bullied a lot. I was a little short, chubby kid. And uh, I remember, like, in the 70s, Reggie Jackson was a hero. So all the neighborhood teenagers would like get, you know, have me hang out with them when I was seven or eight years old and say, Wedgie, Wedgie, Wedgie. I didn't know any better, so I chanted with them. So they hung me by my underwear on a pole. My butt was bleeding. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. A woman had to cut me down. That was my childhood. I didn't like who I was. I was afraid of everybody. I didn't like what I saw in the mirror. So I did things to make myself stand out. I'd be stupid. I'd act crazy. Well, <laughs> it wasn't acting. <laughs> but I did things to make myself stand out. And I tried to be the class clown and... But I was still getting bullied, got beat up all the time in school. I remember at an early age I was uh, on a seesaw, and the kid jumped off. My head went, <laughs> busted my lip open, and that's how I was treated. And, and uh, I thought I'd, that's how I was supposed to be treated by people. So I allowed it to happen. 
until one day when I decided, what's this stuff these guys are drinking? So at 15, I, I was... Uh, I, I was still a scared kid, man. You know, I, 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 I didn't. I didn't think that I would fit in anyway. So I just, what the heck? So I drank this stuff that they had, in brown bottles, in brown bags, and uh, I felt something—a warm sensation. I threw up. I drank more of it, and I felt really good. It made me not afraid of these people anymore. It made me feel like I fit in. I wasn't afraid to start fights myself. And at this time, I was uh, going to a Catholic school. I was uh, an altar boy. I trained boys to be altar boys. Um, I had a good experience in the Catholic Church. And the only reason why I say that, because I'm not going to religion bash up here, but something was missing, even in religion. You know, I, so I, I decided, okay, you know what? I always liked the priest up there, because when he talked, people listened. So I wanted to be a priest. I thought I was godly, and I thought nobody would pick on me if I became a priest. Um... That wasn't true anyway, but um, I went to a junior seminary to become a priest. Because I, I, the one thing I knew in my life was that God loved me. Until I started drinking regularly. So I was in his junior seminary and uh, I would drink the wine from the sacristy and get drunk. And... Uh, it's like, you know, this isn't for me. And I would start fights. Was, who starts fights at a junior seminary? You know, I was like, what the heck? So I got kicked out of there, and I went to a place called LaSalle Academy in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And I'd take the train to school, and uh, it was around the corner from a, a motorcycle head, club headquarters. And I remember getting mugged. I got jumped by a few guys. And the next thing I know, I'm cowering in the corner. I'm scared. I'm hurt. And I hear these motorcycles revving their engines. And there was like, I don't know how many got bikers there. And they just like beat the living heck out of these guys that jumped me. And I was like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Like, this ain't about you, kid. This is our neighborhood. I was like, so, in New York in the 80s, the drug was what they called Crazy Eddie or PCP or Angel Dust. And I was drinking and I called it partying. It definitely wasn't partying. It definitely was not partying. I was, I was smoking dust every day and drinking regularly and getting into fights, failing out of school. I could never concentrate on homework. It's like I would try it and then just like give it up it's like I'm not doing this I can't do it I can't do it I can't do it and that was my mantra in life I just I can't do it so I got kicked out of LaSalle Academy because I wasn't failing and my mom was spending a lot of money for me to go there and I ended up living with her and uh, moving with her 
somewhere else and we moved from neighborhoods and it was uh, it was rough moving because I had some friends that were nice not many but a couple and uh, I moved away from them and still in Brooklyn but you know when you're like 10 blocks away it's a mile it's miles of miles away in New York and I went to uh, high school public high school and I found more alcohol and other substances that allowed me to not feel. I do remember it was mischief night. It was, it was after school. It was the day before Halloween. And I was waiting for a school bus. Not the school bus, the city bus. And... Uh, I was smoking dust and drinking, and my friend said, hey, get an egg and throw it at that cop. So I got the egg, and I hurled it across the street. And that wasn't a good throw. I hit him right on the head. So 27 people get arrested with me. I get beat up by eight cops, and I wake up in holding, handcuffed to the wall, and they unhandcuffed the guy next to me and said, we can't beat him up, but you sure as hell can. So I got beat up by it again, the guy in jail. And um, what was really scary was uh, in central booking in New York, it's weird because they put you in cells with other juveniles. And then the next cell, there's adults. I was scared. I got bullied in jail. Go figure. Um, but when the judge saw me in night court a couple days later and said, you know, officer, you mean to tell me this young boy beat you up? 24 hours community service. So I did community service with a bunch of people that were, had higher degrees than I did in using drugs and drinking. But um, I learned some different ways to do things. Um, I learned about crime. It's pretty fun. So... At this point, my mom was sick and tired of me drinking and doing drugs, and she said, I had enough of you. Um, you've got to be evil. I was listening to heavy metal music and had my hair long. That was probably hard to imagine now. but um, So she threw me out, and she made me live with my dad. And that was probably the worst thing that happened in my life, one of the worst things. I learned how to drink the right way from my dad. He, I was drinking in bars at 16. And uh, like I said, I had this long hair, and he called me a fag because I had long hair. And, uh, you know, in, the, in Brooklyn, it's like, you know, it's a real macho thing, macho place. And I had this, uh, these romantic feelings about other men sometimes, and I couldn't put my finger on it, but something told me it was shameful. Because all the men around me were like, you know, macho, macho, macho. And I was like, you know, I kind of like this guy. He's kind of cute. But I hated myself for it. And I drank more and I did more drugs. And uh, my, my father, like I said, my father taught me how to drink and like a man at a bar, on a bar stool. Um, and... Uh, I was still going to high school, and at this point, I was ready to drop out of school. So they put me in this thing called mini school, where you work part of the day, and you go to school part of the day, and you get your GED. 
I fell out of that too. <laughs> I, I met this girl who was really beautiful. She was uh, Jamaican and uh, other East Indian descent. She was gorgeous. Her name was Annette. And I never did anything with girls. And I think I get to second base with her or something. I don't even know where that is, but it's second base. <laughs> and uh, um, back in back in my you know high school days, uh, skinheads were really big. Um, and I got a beat down for being an end lover. So. Uh, Like Papa used to say, if you can't beat some, join some. So I shaved my head and got jumped in with these guys. Um, it's not what I believed, but I fit in somewhere. The violence against people for a color or a religion was not me, but that's what I did because I fit in with these brothers who had my back. So I drank more, and I did more drugs, and I still felt that empty knot inside. I thought I was a hurt kid, so what do hurt people? They hurt people. Well, I finally uh, had enough of living with my dad and getting beat up on a regular basis, and I begged my mother to let me move in with her, and she told me, you got to stop drinking. Sure, I'll do anything. <laughs> that did not last a day. She was moving to New Jersey with a new husband, so I moved to New Jersey with them, and I swore off alcohol and drugs. I'm like, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do it. My first day at, to my new job, I walked past his house, and there's this five foot eleven beautiful chick with a 12-inch mohawk, and a bunch of punks hanging out, and like, hey, a skinhead, hey, come here and hang out. So I was drinking right before my first job in Jersey. By 17, I had hit, I went to a treatment center, and they brought Alcoholics Anonymous in. And they brought other fellowships in, which I ended up joining a different fellowship. And, uh, when they read the 12 steps and talked, you know, the speakers would come in and tell their story. I was like, I can relate to that. I didn't have a doubt in my mind that I was an alcoholic by this point. Because, you know, drinking on a regular basis when you're 14, 15 years old is not, you know, normal. So I decided, okay, I'm going to join this way of life. And I got involved with another fellowship. Um... And I learned a lot of things about myself. I started to work the steps, only the first three, and then I ch changed sponsors. And then I, you know, new sponsors start me on new steps. So I did the one, two, three, cha, cha, cha for a little while, where I just move on to sponsors after step three. Because there was something in my past that I didn't like. There was that sexuality stuff that came up. And um, so I had about two years. And I was working on my fourth step without a solid foundation of the first three steps. I, I didn't have hope. I didn't have faith. I knew I was powerless, but I did not have faith in this higher power that they had me draw in rehab. Um, so I decided, you know, I was, I was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder. 
found out later I'm just it's just depression. I don't have bipolar. The only time I was manic was when I was smoking coke. <laughs> but uh, so I had a fight with my mom and my stepfather. I was like, I'm out of here. And the only thing I grabbed was my medication, my month's worth of medication. I went to buy a, I got a liter of Sprite, and I took all my lithium and all my antidepressant. It was about 30,000 milligrams of lithium. Because I wanted to die. I didn't feel good. I didn't feel right. There was something wrong with me. I woke up three days later in the hospital on dialysis and the first thought in my head was fudge I didn't make it I didn't succeed so I got back in the fellowship and you know did therapy and psychiatry and but that faith step scared me because who would want to uh, love someone like me? And why, why would I lean on this God that allowed these things to happen in my life? Allowed a babysitter to molest me when I was seven and eight. Allowed my father to beat me. Allowed my mother to crumble up my homework and throw it across the room and like, go get it. And you unwrinkle that and you do it again. I was a kid. I didn't know how to deal with life and these are the people that were teaching me how to live life. So anger was my first language. I took it out on myself, mostly. So I met this beautiful woman in the fellowship I was in and she was a junkie. And she taught me how to use the injectable alcohol. Heroin became my love. But I always had that bottle of Boone's Farm to start a party and, um, and, and I learned that in my disease of addiction, which alcoholism is, <laughs> that more is what I want. But more is never enough. So I ended up, you know, a junkie and, you know, smoking crack and drinking every day and the things I had to do to get my drugs and alcohol when I wasn't working were, you know, not of, you know, the legal nature. And I had a bottom. I was homeless. I was living in Philly. I took a train to New York. I, asked, I ended up on my sister's doorstep in Brooklyn. She hardly recognized me. I was 155 pounds soaking wet. I'm about 240 now, so figure that out. Sunk in cheeks, raccoon eyes. But I, I thought I was bad, you know. <laughs> I was falling apart. So I ended up in a treatment center again and after moving to Miami with my abusive father. And uh, I ended up in treatment again. Found a fellowship to work on my, myself and... I fell in love with the fellowship I was in, and they did things like make fun of AA. So what did I do? I wanted, my normal mantra, if you can't beat them, join them. So I would bash AA. 
in this other fellowship. And it wasn't the fellowship that was the people. It was people. It was individuals who were hurt. So, you know, we'd say stuff like, you know, AA invented the steps. We perfected them. Sober, be, be, short of being entirely ready. Like really these hurtful things about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think it's pretty much God's will that I'm up here. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I, 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 I bought into the fellowship and I, I worked, the, I worked all the steps. And you know, I, I'm going to talk about healing and more hurting and more healing. Um, you know, I met these people in, a, in the fellowship that were loving and caring also. That weren't just bashing AA, but they were just work the steps or die, MF. You know, um, you get a commitment. You know, back then it was coffee cups, ashtrays, and chairs. That's what I did. And uh, it kept me it kept me sober. So I got to the fourth step again, and I got to write about the stuff that I felt shame about. You know, the the, the sexual abuse from the babysitter. And uh, I'm going to tell my analogy about the fifth step. You know, this guy goes to his sponsor, and he's they're doing his fifth step, and he says he starts bawling. He says, "I can't do this." He said, "What's the, the sponsor said? What's the matter?" He said. I had sex with a chicken. And his sponsor asked, Did yours live? Because <laughs> there's, there's something about telling another man my deepest, darkest secrets, knowing that he probably did worse than me. You know, I'm not the worst person in the room. I'm not the best person in the room. I'm just Bobby. And there's, there's things I did that I was very unproud of, I'm very ashamed of, and I'm working through that, a lot of that stuff. I've, wor- I've, I've healed through a lot of it, but I still have a way to go. You know, so I met this beautiful woman. She didn't have a year yet, so I stayed away. And uh, I was best friends with her sponsor. And I was like, you know, I, this... I like Sarah, and like, well, Sarah kind of likes you, you know? So, like, well-meaning gossip got me to meet my wife, who's going to be my ex-wife soon, but... Um, <laughs> but I fell in love with this woman, and, and she, she had moved away already, so we were doing a long-distance relationship. I was in Fort Lauderdale. She was in Daytona. And I decided, you know, I'm going to pursue this relationship more further, and... We moved in together, and I moved. I left my support group behind me in South Florida, and I went up to Daytona. We ended up in Gainesville because she got a job at the university. But uh, I started losing contact with people in the fellowship. I, I started to not call people as often. I. I tried to, I tried, yeah, I tried to go to meetings, but I couldn't connect with people. So it wasn't that I made a conscious decision to not go to meetings anymore. It seemed like it was happening organically. I found the great church uh, with people that had history like me. We started um, something called Alcoholics Victorious. It's 
12 steps out of the Bible. If you don't believe that, that's cool, but I did. So um, it was cool. But then I moved to Gainesville and after connecting with people in Daytona and had no connection in Gainesville. So what did I do? Well, I didn't drink, but I really became a jerk. The spiritual principles started going away. But I was still going to church. In fact, I became a... So I ended up, this woman, Sarah, we, we got married, and we have a beautiful daughter, Sydney, who's now six. And uh, I remember our honeymoon. We went to Costa Rica, and I was like, good morning, wife. I said, good morning, husband. And I was so happy. But it's from something outside of me. So, the spiritual principles were going away, coming back. And I, you know, got involved with uh, my father-in-law's church. And uh, they said, hey, you want to be a deacon? I'm like, sure, I'd be a deacon. Never thought, you know, to ask a ex-skinhead to be a deacon at a Presbyterian church. <laughs> but this guy, one of the elders, uh, took me under his wing and he, and he taught me about theology and stuff and we studied the Bible for a whole year. And uh, these people that were at the church were very hurtful. They didn't like what my father-in-law was doing as a pastor, which he did nothing wrong, but they still didn't like it, so they ostracized him. And I'm from, you know, I'm half Italian and half Irish, so, you know, you mess with my family, you're messing with me. I was like, F this church, F this God, F these people. So the spiritual principles were all gone now. Some, I, I'm not a big book thumper. I never have been. I have ADHD. So I, it takes me a long time to comprehend things. I have to read them over and over and over again. But somewhere in the, it says about white knuckling. And uh, I was white knuckling it for a while. I ended up uh, getting diagnosed with ADHD at 40. And I figured, wow, that's why I sucked in school. <laughs> I couldn't figure out why. And uh, actually, part of my story is that I've had these uh, tics my whole life. I would grunt, um, sniffle, cough, blink my eyes. And I got made fun of that for a lot, for a long time. But it turns out that uh, I have Tourette's Syndrome. But it's not the kind that I say the F-bomb, so I can't do that. I, I want to justify it and, you know, drop a few F-bombs here, but I can't. Um, but like, I was like, oh, great, another thing wrong with me. Like, what the heck is going on in my life, you know? So um, I started this different type of therapy for it, and that was a little insane. So I was like, did... it, it was funny because uh, my wife was very involved in the community in Gainesville. And... Uh, she said they're having this open mic thing in downtown, and this nonprofit she was involved with did it. You know, they, people would have an open mic night, and you tell your story. So I, you know, go up there, and she said, "Why don't you go up there?" I was like, "I can't talk in front of people. I'm nervous. You know, I'm afraid of people." 
I say, just go tell a little bit of your story. And I go, so I go up there and on the stage, and I tell a little bit of my story, and in walks this guy named Chad, who happened to be friends with my wife already, and he said, so, he's heard a little of my story, he's like, you a friend of Bill W's? I said, no, Jimmy K. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that ego, like, you know, hey, hey, hey. no. So he said, we got to talking a little while, and he had it, we had them over for him and his wife over for dinner, and told him a little bit of my story that I haven't been going to meetings but I'm still clean and sober and, and uh, he said oh so you just dry drunk it's like I'm not dry what are you talking about I want to smack him but something clicked with Chad and I and he invited me to go to this men's retreat called the Atlanta Men's Workshop that was in 2015 and I said, yeah, I'll go. What the heck? I got nothing to lose. And, you know, I, one thing I've learned a long time ago is when, when you're asked to do something, you don't say no. So I came up to this Atlanta Med's workshop with, I don't know how many brick walls surrounding me. And this guy shorter than me, Alan, was one of my roomies. And he told me how he had 17 years and went out. Carrying with uh, 18 or 19 years sober and haven't hit a meeting for regularly for about nine years. And I was easing God out by not working the steps and coming to a fellowship that saved my life. And I was scared. We had a little bond there. And, uh, but that bond scared me. We exchanged numbers and, you know, I was like, I still had those walls up driving home and, like, I uh, found out a couple of rocks later that, you know, Chad was, like, done with me, basically, because, you know, this guy ain't open to nothing. So I got to more desperation. Sober. Dry, whatever you want to call it. And uh, my depression is a big part of my story. I mean, obviously, you know, if you try to kill yourself, depression is a part of your story. I decided that uh, I was going to try to go to different churches. That didn't really work. Not too long. But I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to N.A. I went to meetings in N.A. in, in Gainesville because that's the fellowship I felt more comfortable in because I want to be able to talk about drugs. Well... It it's not there to talk about drugs. But I went to these meetings and, and I felt alone because I was the person with the most clean time in the room and it was filled with a bunch of newcomers. And I was like, where am I going to get the solution? So, I came to another Atlanta Meds workshop with Chad and I recommitted to a program that is saving my life today. And I only go to one fellowship because I'm a very, very faithful person. Um, and I, I can say that even though I stopped drinking and using without Alcoholics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous is keeping me sober. Alcoholics Anonymous teaches me how to live my life again. And, you know, I, I, I cause a lot of wreckage in my present. The rage that I was taught as a child is my first language. It's all I know. 
So, who gets the, the brunt of my rage? The people closest to me. My beautiful wife that I said, good morning, wife. It's not a cry until snot's dripping down your nose. It's starting to happen. I'm not going to apologize for crying up here because this is the safest place I could be right now. So I. It's hard to stand up here 21 years and say I abused my wife. Now, it wasn't physical. Never laid a hand on her. But I left scars. And my six-year-old daughter, I'd scream at. It's my first language. Something happens when you work the steps. It's, it's a miracle. I become self-aware of things. But the self-awareness is not enough. To either poop or get off the pot. So I was like, okay, let me try to step stuff again. I've got to find a sponsor. You know, so at a rock, I came up here and I, I went to, uh, came to the rock and I asked a gentleman outside, the guy that does the drinks for us and does a lot more stuff for the rock, Scott, for his, for his phone number. I, I related a lot to what he has shared. Um, he had a lot of time. He seemed to have a really great program, which he does, and I wanted what he had. So I asked him for his phone number, and a couple of weeks later, I called him. <laughs> and I asked him to sponsor me. And he said, I don't know about the long-distance thing, but I said, well, you know, I got, I got 19 years, and I'm not high-maintenance. <laughs> I said, what a joke that was. <laughs> I think I'm the most high-maintenance person there is. <laughs> but we, we tried it. And uh, he got me to read the big book. And uh, I was just reading the big book. And I was calling him. I'd talk a little bit about stuff and tell him how angry I was at my wife. And he'd say, that might be in your cards, but you got to make sure you keep your side of the street clean. you got to take care of your, your stuff. Because um, I, I still had to blame thrower out. It's all her fault. She's not cleaning the cat box. Um, so I, you know, I'm this stark, raving, lunatic, sober guy who's yelling at my wife because she didn't clean the cat box, and I'm yelling at my daughter because she, she pooped in her pants when she's potty training, like, duh. And part of me didn't want to live anymore. I was smoking a cigarette on my back patio and I came up with a plan to kill myself. But God took my thumb and texted my wife, please call me. And she called me immediately because I said please. Because that wasn't in my vocabulary with her. 
It was all, you, 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 do this, do that. And uh, we decided, she said, what do I do? I said, well, I need to go somewhere where I need to be, be safe. So he signed me into a psychiatric hospital for a couple of days. And uh, she was in my intake with me. She asked me if I wanted her to leave. I said, no, you can hear this. And when she heard that, you know, I was in a psych hospital over ten times in the years, something happened. She got scared. And when she heard I had a plan to kill myself and what my plan was, she was really scared. Because she had this daughter to take care of. Well, the funny thing is, I got over this stuff. And uh, in the hospital, I said, uh, a, I got to call this my sponsor. And the, this one person, Chad, he's on my list to come visit me. And you know what? I got to call my sponsor. And he was calling me pretty regularly to try to get in touch with me. And it was hard to get in touch with me. But Chad came to visit with me when I was in the hospital, trying to get my head on right again. And uh, a light went off. Steps. Promises. So this is guy. I got a home group, and uh, I suffer from a lot of anxiety. I don't use that word suffer. No, no, no. I have stuff. I have anxiety, and it masks itself with depression. Depression masks itself with anxiety. So I'm like. I go crazy sometimes, and I shake, and I definitely have a social anxiety. You guys are scaring me because you're all naked right now. <laughs> it's not a pretty sight. <laughs> Almost as bad as to look at myself in the mirror. <laughs> um, so I asked this guy, Bill, to sponsor me, and he's a, like I said, you know, short Marine guy. Carries himself as because he's just comfortable his own like he's comfortable his own skin because he is and that's what I wanted I wanted to be comfortable in my own skin again um, so I started working the steps again and he said you know guys with time they usually drag their feet with the steps <laughs> more newcomers and he's right but I do pray for the willingness of a newcomer again because I remember that desperation I was in that desperation. It wasn't it wasn't just about not drinking. It was about not killing myself. It was about not screaming at my wife anymore. Um, so I started working the steps again. And like I said before, you know, I was raised a Catholic. I've been a deacon at a Presbyterian church, and I even practiced Buddhism. Um, my understanding of my higher power changes because the longer I tap into that power, the more I understand the higher power, the more I have faith in that higher power. And, and uh, if you don't believe, that's okay. Because I didn't really believe when I came in. The third step taught me to have faith in this higher power, who I, my understanding gets deeper of every day. And it's, the third step is just simple. Work the rest of the steps. You know, and, and turn over my 
thoughts and my actions to him. But it seemed like it was a little too late with my marriage. Um, Last uh, October, my wife asked for a divorce. And I didn't rage. I didn't yell. I could just tell she was done. My, the wreckage of my present and by not working these 12 steps in all of my affairs pushed my wife away. It pushed her to the point where she couldn't deal with me anymore. So I said, okay, I'll move out. So I moved out. Got a nice little apartment in the hood. In fact, one of my friends just said he's a cop there. <laughs> I go, oh, great. Okay. Good thing I'm not looking for it. <laughs> um, but uh, there were some days that I did not want to go home to this empty apartment without my, the pitter-patter of my six-year-old girl. You know, the one thing I missed, the, one thing I missed most out of my marriage is being with my little girl every day and kissing her goodnight every single night, reading her books every night, and. Uh, gets better though I'm, I'm uh, my wife told me uh, she was done and wanted a divorce I moved out and then I realized that I could eat ice cream in the living room naked <laughs> watching Netflix I kind of felt pretty cool. It's <laughs> like, wow, I couldn't do this at home. <laughs> and uh, a few weeks ago, a few men in my inner circle came to my apartment. We, I have a singing bowl to meditate with, and we meditated together in my apartment. So I'm making this place that I didn't want to go to a place of healing. And I'm still talking to my ex-wife. Well, she's not my ex yet, but we're still married. But um, the last day I was with my daughter, she said, Papa, so-and-so stayed over for breakfast today. I'm like, who's so-and-so? Mama's friend. The only thing I asked my daughter was if if he was nice. Because I don't want to put my daughter between us. So I went to drop my daughter off and asked my wife, uh, so who's so-and-so? And her, she turned white as a ghost and said, this is a guy I've been seeing. And, you know, I, I, I hold on. I, I let go of things with claw marks. You know, I don't do the open hand. I hold on to that stuff for, and I leave claw marks. So I haven't moved on from my marriage yet. But not, and, you know, with the integrity that they taught me in, in the fellowship and these steps teach me, uh, until that paper is signed, I'm still married. And if, if anything, I'm faithful to myself. Now, boy, do I lust. Oh, I see these women come in. I see some newcomers. Oh, yeah, I can help you here, honey. And then I got to sit down with one of these newcomer women with a friend of mine. We were meeting before, for coffee before a meeting, and... I was listening to her talk, 
and I stopped objectifying her as, you know, two beautiful breasts, but a person that is a human being struggling with this addiction that we have, that I have, this alcoholism. And talk, and she's way more grown up with other ways, things than I am. I'm like, wow, that's pretty freaking cool. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, maybe I'll stop looking at porn too. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. I know. I know that. Um, The person that stands before you is still a broken man. I got a lot of bruises and cuts and scrapes. But the healing process is not supposed to be a painless one. It's like when if you're in a burn clinic, they have to scrape off the dead skin to get down to, to the root of the infection and clean it and debride it. And that hurts. I hurt. There's something that somebody said about me a long time ago. It was this woman that was helping us with our wedding. And uh, she was a, a Christian woman who had visions. And she said to my mother-in-law, I had a vision of Bobby. He was, uh, he was in a boat. And there was a bunch of men around him in the water, in really rough water, and they were drowning. And he pulled them out of the water. He just kept pulling men out of this water. My God has shown me what my purpose is again. Because I feel no more alive than when I'm talking to a newcomer man that is so desperate they're either dope sick or going through DTs or they're just freaking done and they want something that I have that blows my mind and I get to share my experience strength and hope with them and hopefully maybe they'll stay sober but if anything it keeps me sober you know, I was like, I told my sponsor, I was like, you know, I'm going to go up to the rock and speak. And like, what do you do? You know, do I prepare for this? He said, just go up there and tell your story. There's a lot of things I missed. But, you know, I, I'm going to say this and then I'll close. And it's a quote, so I've got to look it up. It's actually not a quote quote, it's a paraphrase. And I'm sure you guys have heard it, but it means a lot to me. And it's written by a guy named John Newton. He's the one that wrote Amazing Grace. I'm not the man I ought to be. I am not the man I wish to be. And I am not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not the man I used to be. Thanks for letting me share.